Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger. On this episode of Jill on Money, Dilbert creator Scott Adams has a little advice for you for the workplace. It's better to be able to get stuff done. In the long term, people are going to judge you from that. That will be the basis for your success. But the the little slip-ups, the errors, uh, the mistakes, they should not stop you at all. Welcome to the Jill on Money podcast. We are presented by Marcus by Goldman Sachs. We have a treat for you today. I don't know about you guys, but I used to get those Dilbert cartoons sent to me all the time by friends of mine who were in the workplace and really understood that somehow or other, the creator, Scott Adams, he was able to capture some of the nonsense associated with corporate America. Well, Scott Adams is joining us today. He's just written a book called Loser Think, and it is very entertaining. So is he. I think you're going to enjoy this interview. Here we go with Scott Adams. You're listening to Jill on Money with Jill Schlesinger. First question we always ask. You ready? Ready. Since you like write, the Dilbert column is so much about workplace and career. So what is the best career decision you've ever made? Oh, the best career decision was leaving the corporate world. Um, So I started my my cartooning career and kept my day job. And when other people are saying, hey, how do you you succeed? I always tell them to keep their day job. But ideally, you want to make sure your day job is not taking all your good energy. Yeah. So the thing I did was I would wake up early, super early, like 4 a.m., do all of my cartooning, uh, drag myself to work, and about 2 o'clock in the afternoon in my day job, Let's just say I wasn't the most productive person there. Hmm. Let's it, say. It, it kind of trailed off quickly, uh, but I got enough done that nobody noticed. Why is it that you turned to writing this cartoon strip? I mean, what were you a, an art major? Did you have love of the, the medium? Like, what, what led you there? Well, I think I was born to it because from the age of, you know, six years old, I said, well, I'm going to be a famous cartoonist. Specifically, I was going to take over for Charles Schultz. That, I mean, that was the goal. Okay. So you love the Peanuts characters. Who are you? Which Peanut character? Oh, um, I like to think I'm Snoopy because I live in my imagination all the time. Really? Yeah. Guess who I am? Um, no. Peppermint Patty? Close. If Peppermint Patty and Lucy had a baby, okay. that's who I am. I was I was torn between the two, so mm-hmm. that's that's the right answer. All right, so you love Charles Schultz. You're going to succeed him. But at about the age of 11, when you start to develop reason and some context about the world, I looked around and said, hey, how many people are, in the, are there in the world? Six billion-ish at the time? And I thought, how many Charles Schultzes are there? One. Wait a minute. You're 11 years old and you're contemplating the the sheer scale of the population and the uh, ability of you to become that unicorn? Yeah, believe it or not, I was that kid. Mm. I mean, I was born an adult. I never I never had any experience that felt like childhood. <laughs> I was I was born with full adult sensibilities that have never changed. But but once I realized that the odds were just sensationally against me, mm. I started entering this age of reason, I'll call it, which is the worst place to be sometimes because it's not a reasonable world. And so I you know, went to college, got an economics degree, worked in big companies, and then I hit a, I hit a ceiling. Wait a second. I want to go back to economics. What about economics appealed to you? I wanted to understand the world in a way that I could control it, meaning that I would at least have control over myself, not the world necessarily. But I thought that understanding money 
was going to be a key to everything. Because, you know, every time there's a crime, they say, follow the money. And you would start hearing this when you were young. And then you see all the all the rich people on TV, and they all seem to know about money. And so I thought, well, that's not a coincidence that money is always like the key to unhooking everything or unraveling and making everything work. So I thought, well, I'll start there. And I was already looking into developing what I later called a talent stack, which is a set of talents that work really well together. And that was that was my base talent. And why do you think you excelled at it? Because what were some of the qualities that made you? Because sometimes economists are sort of tarred with the, you know, on the one hand, on the other hand, on the other hand, like, you know, the three-armed economist. So right. what made you particularly well-suited for that? I don't think I was. It turns out I probably was not like the most gifted natural economist. A lot of it is, you know, math and formulas and graphs and boring things that don't really predict much at all. But if you get the basics of it, Mm. you have sort of a superpower. Right. And when I talk to people, you know, I'm continually having debates on Twitter, et cetera, and you, you meet somebody who doesn't have that, just the basic grasp of uh, economic concepts, you know, the time value of money, the fact that sunk costs shouldn't influence your next decision, uh, the fact that you should make comparisons that are valid, not looking at one thing, the fact that you can't really predict what's going to happen in 10 years because it's just never happened. Uh, So there's some basics that really inform your worldview and they combine really well with psychology. Mm -hmm. You you have to add psychology to economics because in many ways they overlap quite a bit and then that rounds it down. So those are two skills that work really well together. Then tell me about this idea where you were like basically working for a telecom company, right? And what were you doing? Well, well, I first worked for a bank before the telecom company. And just to give context here, um, it was during the, uh, I guess, late 80s. And my boss called me into her office one day and said, I got some bad news for you. And by now I had been recognized as somebody who was likely to be a, you know, a manager someday mm. at, at a high level. And she said, I uh, don't know how to break this to you, but management just got caught with no diversity in our company as senior management. And she said, until further notice, you can't be promoted. She said that out loud. Wow. Directly with with other people in the office, I think. And I always appreciated the honesty of it. She said, you're a white male. We can't, we don't know. And this is in the late 80s. Yeah. So the company was indeed quite guilty of having no diversity. I think there was exactly one female executive in the entire executive suite. So it was a real problem. And I actually don't mind... You know, from a societal perspective, sometimes you have to use a hammer and sometimes you use the tweezers. Mm-hmm. It was sort of hammer time. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a time when they, it was time to make a big change, not the small change. But it affected me. So I said, well, great. Great for society. Not I don't so even, good for Scott. I don't even disagree with the, the overall goal, but this isn't the place for me anymore. So I left. Uh, my entire team that I was on was fired within weeks <laughs> after a after a merger, uh, so I had good timing by luck. Went to Pacific Bell, got on their management fast track. You know, I was identified as an up and comer. And one day, my boss called me in, into his office and he said, "I got bad news for you." And he gave me the same speech because they had also just got caught by the press for having just no diversity at all in senior management. He said, "Can't promote you." I'm just going to tell you honestly, it's not going to happen for you. So that's when I started saying, well, what can I do that I won't run into this? Because twice is a lot. Yeah, I would say. For for one person, that's a lot. Twice in a short period of time. Yeah, we're talking about 
uh, three or four years. Yeah. Like that. So that's about when I started looking around for other things, and I thought, well, maybe I'll try this cartooning thing. Because you, if, you, if you're following the whole arc of the story, I entered the age of reason at around 11, mm-hmm. acted as reasonable as a reasonable person ever acted reasonable, and just hit brick wall after brick wall. Mm-hmm. And then I said, how about I just go batshit crazy mm-hmm. and be completely irrational and try to do the hardest thing that anybody's ever done, which is become a syndicated cartoonist. The odds of anybody becoming one are just ridiculous. It's like winning the lottery. And so when I abandoned reason and followed, I guess you could call it a passion because mm-hmm. I'd always uh, loved cartooning, things worked out. And it took a lot of luck for the actual breaks to happen, but it happened. How did Dilbert become Dilbert? Like, what was it? Did you always lead with that? Were there other permutations leading up to who Dilbert became? <laughs> there, there were not. He was based on a, kind of a composite of people I worked with. The funny thing is that the person he's physically based on the person he looks like is not aware that I used him as the model. Get out. Yeah, because it's somebody I, I work with, but not closely. You know, we didn't have any Just thought he was sort of a funny-looking dude, middle manager guy. When you looked at him, you thought, potato. Right. And, and I thought, well, that's just a great body shape for a character. If I may no- notice that you're a very slender, in-shape man, so it's certainly not you. Fit, practically ripped. Ex- well, I let's not go put, crazy, all right? I don't right? put words in your mouth. I know, right. I, but, I know they were on the tip of your tongue. Exactly. Don't take your shirt off. Um, so <laughs> You know I do that. But. Dilbert is uh, this potato-shaped guy. Who is Dilbert? Tell us a little bit about like who you think of Dilbert when you're conceiving him in the beginning. Well, the main characters have to have some element of my personality, so I can I can read something into them. So Dilbert is sort of my nerdy, socially awkward side, um, my my side that is you know loves his computer, and I could spend hours just writing code um, and have. He he's sort of the the simple version of me, where I was a little bit maybe more idealistic and less realistic. Dogbert is my secret side, the the thoughts that I have that you should never express in, in out loud, but he can do it because he's a comic and a dog. Wally's sort of my lazy side where I, where I say to myself, you know, if I were a different kind of person, I could really take advantage of this system. Mm-hmm. I typically don't, but I, I always have those thoughts. And so does everybody. So does everybody. And, you know, then Alice is angry. She takes, She's my angry side, etc. So they're all some version of me. When did Dilbert really start to, um, like, you, you began the process in when? Is this the 90s? So it was 1988 when I developed him and sent him off. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, there's some backstory there, but basically I got some good advice from a, a working cartoonist. And then several syndication companies rejected me. And when I thought I had all the rejections, one day I got a call from a woman who said, hey, we saw you comic and we'd like to offer you a syndication contract. Now, that's like hearing you won the lottery. Totally. It's like, so as soon as uh, she said, I'd like to offer you a contract, I was trying to remember if I'd ever sent my samples to anybody by the name of her company. She mm-hmm. said it was United Media. And I'd never heard of this company. So I said, well, I'm flattered, but I've never heard of your company. Uh, is, there, is there anybody you've worked with I've, I've seen? Um, is there maybe some references you could give me? Have you ever published a cartoon I've, that's been in, say, a, a pamphlet? Or, yeah. And she goes, yeah, we handle uh, peanuts. Yeah, you're here of them? And Knucklehead? Garfield. <laughs> and this was, the, this was the point I realized my negotiating position had been compromised. Because 
because I, I I wasn't the uh, the on the ball guy that I thought I I could have been. Mm-hmm. Uh, I said yes, and we started a long association. I'm now with a different syndication company who swallowed up that other one. Right. Uh, so the the workplace. What was happening in the 90s as this was really getting started? This is like the 80s, I feel like, sort of the end of a certain era. It almost felt like the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and then 90s start. And what is it about the workplace that's so fun for you? So the thing that really made it work is that all the downsizing. So when the the balance of power changed so dramatically to, well, you know, employees... We used to say you're our most valuable asset, but you know what would be really valuable would be getting rid of you and shipping your job overseas. So when things became that unbalanced, it became fun because good comics are about, you know, pain and unhappiness and annoyances and everything that's bad. Uh, So that's when it really took off. Now, partly because concepts don't work so well in the news until you can put a face to it. Mm-hmm. And there was no individual employee who got, you know, replaced or something that was the face. So this cartoon became the face on magazines and stories. And so Dilbert becomes a symbol of the changing workplace, the the loss in stature of an employee and almost like the, the day-to-day humiliations. How do you tap into that? Because you're still working, but are you feeling that? Do you feel those day-to-day humiliations besides like, hey, you're a white guy, we can't advance you? But what? <laughs> how do you keep that up when you leave the job? Yeah, it's, it's a little bit as if you were asked somebody who had been in prison for 20 years. So do you still remember what prison was like? <laughs> you know, do you, can you remember your bunk? How about that toilet? Do you have a, do you have a good memory? Yes. Wow. Yes. Yes, yes you do. A darn good one. Thank you very <laughs> yeah, much. There, there's some things you don't forget. But there's a u- universality about big organizations, anything that has a hierarchy. They end up acting the same. So, in fact, when I moved from the bank to the phone company, the, the thing I imagined was going to happen was, thank goodness, all these problems of bad management, mm. it's all behind me now. I'm going to a company that is different, It's going and then it's exactly the same. How do you stay in touch with the workplace, like, for example, today, if you think like, oh, that workplace of the 80s, the 90s, even the aughts is now this weird bro culture, millennial <laughs> wackiness. Like, how do you stay in touch with that? So much of it is universal Mm. that I run into the same kind of issues just in my normal business life. You know, I'm in meetings, too, and I'm depending on people, too, and I'm on teams, too. Uh, I also, every now and then, I will tweet, tell me what's bugging you at work, and then I'll get, you know, hundreds of comments. What's the latest thing that bugs people at work? Nothing bugs people more than somebody clipping their nails in a, in a neighboring cubicle. Okay, that is disgusting. I was thinking about a management issue, not a physical issue. That is disgusting. <laughs> the, the, <laughs> the management issues are usually that the boss has given you uh, a target, some kind of a goal, mm. and is also the biggest problem to achieving it. Mm. So they need to approve something, but they're not there. So it's always the, the, the boss gives you the challenge and all of the obstacles at the same time. Oh, how lovely. This is Jill on Money. Hey, gang, it's me, Jill Schlesinger. You know that. You're listening to The Pod. Certified financial planner, CBS News business analyst, host of this here podcast, Jill on Money. And I am here to tell you about our sponsor, Marcus by Goldman Sachs. They're helping people achieve financial well-being with simple and transparent banking products, 
including Clarity Money. That's a free personal finance management app that's part of the Marcus family. Clarity Money is your AI-powered financial champion that shows you a simple view of your finances together in one place. They recently launched a weekly budgeting feature that you've just got to try. The app does the hard part for you and calculates your average weekly spend by category. You can take that information so you can set informed budget goals based on what matters most to you. You can also subscribe to budget alerts to help keep you on track and start with a clean slate every week. Who doesn't want that? It's super easy to use and can make a task like budgeting kind of fun. So go check it out. Download Clarity Money through Google Play or iTunes or visit Marcus.com forward slash Clarity. And now back to our interview with Scott Adams. You wrote a book. It's called Loser Think, How Untrained Brains Are Ruining America. How are they ruining America? What's going on here? The idea here behind Loser Think, a word I made made up, is that I noticed on Twitter when people would be debating me, as is my daily experience, that they'd make sometimes good comments, and I'd click on their profiles and say, who, who is making this good comment? It would be a lawyer, a scientist, uh, maybe an economist, and then somebody would make a comment that's just crazy, just showed some kind of irrational, you know, non-rational process. I'll click on the uh, profile, and it'll be artist, musician, cartoonist, <laughs> oddly enough, and people were in a different field. And I started asking myself, is that a coincidence? Is it self-selection? People mm. go into these fields because they have, they're have they wired a different way. And by the way, I'm not insulting anybody in any of these fields because genius literally comes in every kind of field and every kind of form. So a musical genius doesn't have to be good at math. There's no reason they should be. I started thinking that there's something about the experience that, say, an economist or a scientist has that might be foreign to somebody who went through an art a path in their life. So not necessarily like a creative path is what you're saying. Not like an art, not like a liberal arts education, which I think you like. I think you, you seem to like be partial towards having some baseline, some discipline within liberal arts that right. you can layer on other pieces, right? So liberal arts isn't just liberal arts. So, you know, I studied economics and that was very useful. If you had studied, say, psychology, I'd say that'd be useful. But you can imagine maybe there's some literature art majors that don't get exactly the same critical thinking lessons. Now, when I say lessons, I don't mean you need to master any of these fields. Mm -hmm. So what the book does is I pick out just the most obvious and frequent uh, thinking errors that you see all the time in real life. So I just keep it simple and I explain it the way an economist or a psychologist would. By the way, when you say loser think, you're not saying you're not saying that these people on Twitter who make these comments that you've perceived to be as nutty, you're not calling them losers. No, you're not. saying Right? So you, you let's right. make that distinction. Yeah, people are great, but not everybody has the same technique. And loser think is just bad technique. And by the way, I say, you know, a couple times during the book that there's nothing in the book that isn't an error I've personally made and many times because they're so seductive. Mm. Like, let me give you an example. One of the most common errors you'll see is people will imagine they know what somebody else is thinking and that it's bad intentions. It wasn't an accident. No, it's bad intentions. I can tell because I'm reading your mind. Even though I've never met you, you're some stranger in the news. Uh, I point out that if people were good mind readers, how would that explain every relationship you've ever been in? Because whoever your partner is, 
you know that they have misread your your internal thoughts continually and they know you best and they're sitting right in front of you. How are you going to think that you know some stranger's inner thoughts? Malcolm Gladwell's most recent book talks a lot about that, about how we think we know more about something. Even if we read a story, we think we come to a conclusion so quickly without trying to poke holes in it. So I find that to be really interesting. The other thing that you wrote in this early on in the book is the risk of mockery changes behavior. Yes. Yeah, so Does it still? Yes, there's almost nothing more powerful than mockery. Maybe fear, you know. Greed. You know, peer pressure and stuff. So, yeah, greed. Greed beats everything. You're right. Mm-hmm. Greed beats everything. All right, I win. Uh, I'm, a, win. I'm, a, I'm a character now. <laughs> yes, yeah, so, but mockery is very powerful. And um, one of the examples I use is that when Elon Musk wanted to tell his employees how, how they should act, what kind of culture he wanted, he gave them a list of just a very short list of behaviors and one of them, he said, was uh, don't do anything that might appear in a Dilbert cartoon. Now, that was very powerful, not only because there was a word for it that everybody could kind of understand. Like, you know it when you see it. It's like, okay, that's a Dilbert situation. Let's not do that. And the implied mockery is sort of a good way to control people. I, you know, for years, people had been writing to me and saying, you know, I'm a manager. I was going to implement policy X, Y, Z. And then somebody gave me one of your comics mocking it, and I just decided to cancel that policy. But what's interesting about the Elon Musk thing is that isn't he just so like a delicious form of mockery in and of himself that the guy goes, gets wasted, goes on a podcast and acts like a dumbass? (laughs) You know what I mean? Like he didn't read his own warning, which is don't be an idiot. Don't go get wasted. Go on a podcast, be an idiot and start to maybe have your board think, is this guy really the right guy for us? I I love Elon Musk. So I'm going to take the counter position, which is, you know, the people who build great things are just not like you and I. They're just not. And you can't expect that when they go home or they're off duty, that they're acting just like us when they go to work and they're building spaceships to Mars and electric cars and stuff. So like many of the, the greats, you know, and Elon Musk, he's, he's in the, the, oh, yeah. he's the, the pantheon. I of, agree. I, I just tolerate and accept all of that as just part of the package. So people are, don't feel good about their egos, the use of their ego. I found this quite interesting in part of the book about dialing up and dialing down your ego. Why is that so important? A lot of people go through life thinking that their ego is essentially who they are. In other words, uh, I must protect myself. I, I cannot be embarrassed. I cannot do things that will potentially hurt me. And that keeps you in a little bubble. You don't take the risk that you need. Nobody did anything good without a little bit of risk mm. or a lot of risk. Mm. So what I recommend is that to get out of that bubble, that you, you treat your ego as a tool that you can dial up when that's a good good idea and dial down when it's not. Sometimes you'd want to dial it up. Is let's say you're a job interview or a competition of some sort where confidence helps. Now, you don't want to over-dial it. You don't want to be the arrogant person in the job interview, but you want to go in with a sense of confidence. So tell yourself you're good at it. Maybe do some things in your life that you're good at that are different, that makes you confident that you can do stuff. It, it, you know, winning makes you better at winning. But there are situations where dialing down your ego is better. You just don't want to come off as a jerk in public. Sometimes. You have a list of things that will put most therapists out of business. I think that I could have saved myself a lot of money had I just looked <laughs> at this list. You also, it's interesting, you said effectiveness is more important than ego. Can you talk a little bit about that? 
Yeah, it's better to be able to guess stuff done. In the long term, people are going to judge you from that. That will be the basis for your success. But the the little slip-ups, the errors, uh, the mistakes, they should not stop you at all. Uh, I, I'm going to tell you my own little embarrassing thing from today, just to give you give you a, an idea. So today, I was, uh, you know, the, the book just came out, and somebody said, do you know that on the title page, the subtitle is wrong? I think your copy was an early copy that wouldn't have this mistake. But the actual subtitle has, instead of saying how untrained brains are ruining America, it says ruining the world. Now, that's on me, because I get to check all of that before that gets final. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, that was right in front of me. I read it and didn't catch it. And now that book is out, and, and people will, will mock me for it now. But... yes. Do I care that I got mocked for missing basically a typo or do I care that I got a book published? Which is awesome. Right. You say, now this could be the difference between Jews and Gentiles right here. Humans need (laughs) optimism and hope to fuel progress. (laughs) Now I might say pessimism and doom have fueled quite a few Jewish people. (laughs) What what do you you mean that humans need? This is, I mean, I'm not kidding. Sometimes I feel like my DNA is hardwired, not necessarily to be optimistic, because so many bad things have happened over 5,000 years. Well, you know, it makes you question what optimism means. Because if you're going out and building a company because you're you know, afraid that doom will kill you if you don't, and people, <laughs> pe- people will uh, you know, not respect you if you, haven't, if you haven't become a doctor or whatever it is, yeah. I feel like that's optimism. It's just disguised in doom. Are you the kind of person that wakes up and you have a headache and you say, oh, I have a headache? I'm the kind of person who wakes up and says, I have a headache. I wonder if I have brain cancer. (laughs) (laughs) I shouldn't say that. I think that for a second and I say, oh, stop it. I'm the kind of person who thinks that every time I check my mail, there's going to be a big check in there for me. And I'm not even joking about that. Literally, every time I check the mail for my entire life, even long before anybody ever sent me a check in the mail, I would go to my mailbox and I think, I think there's something in there. I found a little a corrective in your book for my natural negative DNA. And it says, if bad memories are keeping you from being happy, try crowding out the destructive memories with new and interesting thoughts. Stay busy in mind and body and time is on your side. I think that is true. It's a, it's a shelf space argument yeah. that your brain can't handle everything at once. Just crowd it out with better stuff. I love that you do a little passing like rah-rah for index funds. You take some side shots at anyone who gives financial advice is basically a thief, but only if they have skin in the game. In other words, if they're profiting from that advice, right? right? Yeah, uh, certainly not all uh, financial professionals, but you have to know where they're getting their money and how. Exactly. But don't you find it interesting that people have a hard time asking that question? I mean... When I wrote the book, one of the first, and it's called The Dumb Things Smart People Do With Their Money. And one of the dumb things, I never met so many smart people and I say to them, how do you pay your advisor? I don't know. Wow. What? Wow. Millions of dollars. <laughs> oh, I think oh it's my. a fee. What's the fee? Mm. And, and is your advisor who you're paying 1% a year or whatever, for, no matter whether your portfolio goes up or down, are they putting you in managed funds in which there's another fee and which there's a kickback? Yeah. Those, or, those are the questions. Or are you working with a financial professional, in air quotes, who has to put you first? Because if not, I fear that animal spirits might get the best of him or her. Yeah. Right? 
And yeah. so that's the part that it makes it fun for me to do this show because I get to like talk to real people and be like, okay, I'm sorry that your cousin is a thief, but you've got to fire him as your <laughs> advisor. <laughs> I, I've had that conversation more than once. Um, okay. Last thing is I, I love your 48-hour rule. My father used to have a 24-hour rule. My dad was a trader on the floor of the American Stock Exchange, and people would always ask him financial stock questions. He was like, I'm an idiot. I don't know anything. <laughs> he used to say that all the time. Like, I, I'm, I'm on the floor. I'm a middleman. I, I take an eighth here and a 16th there, and that's how I make a living. But you say there's a 48-hour rule, and here it is. The 48-hour rule says that everyone deserves 48 hours to clarify, apologize for, or otherwise update an offending statement. Yeah, so I invented this rule because every now and then society changes and you have to invent new rules of manners and social behavior. For example, before cell phones, you didn't need a rule that you shouldn't use it in the restaurant. And now you've got you've got Twitter and you've got you know the presses uh, you know, polarized left and right. And, pe- and we're just going after people in this so-called cancel culture. Mm. You said something wrong. There was that thing you said. And I just say, wouldn't it be a better world if you let people clarify and or apologize? And here's the key. People say to me, but what if it's a fake apology? To which I say, that's a perfect apology. Mm-hmm. A fake apology is just as good as a real one. And here's why. If you're willing to say in public the right thing, I'm good with that because the whole problem was you said in public the wrong thing. Just say it right. I I don't care about your thoughts. I'm not the thought police. But some things you just don't do in public. Right. And there are certain thoughts you keep to yourself. And should, yeah. Right. Okay. Before we go, the start of the show, I said best career decision. You said, hey, keeping my day job starting Dilbert. What's the worst career decision you've ever made? (laughs) Well, who, who knows if this really turned out wrong, but... When I was uh, younger and working my bank job, one day a senior vice president asked if I would be his assistant, which is basically a gopher job. Now, what I didn't understand at the time is that although that would look like a demotion to me, this was the ego problem. Mm -hmm. It looked like a demotion, so I said no. Somebody else took the job, somebody I knew, and I think within a year he was one of the youngest vice presidents of the bank. So that was the proposition that he understood, I didn't. It's not a gopher job, it's a meet the other executives job. You're listening to Jill on Money. Okay, it's time for the Marcus Minute. We're presented by Marcus by Goldman Sachs. Sitting in the hot seat today is Scott Adams, the creator of Dilbert. Okay, you ready to play? Ready. What's one word to describe your relationship with money? Cautious. What's always worth spending on? Health. What's the dumbest thing you've spent money on? Oh, man. The list is too long. Uh, uh, Michelin star restaurant. How much do you spend on a haircut? My girlfriend, Christina, cuts my hair. So Zero. it's free or, or a lot more. Or, or you could say it's a lot, yeah. It's your last day on earth. You've got 100 bucks in your pocket. What's your last meal? French fries. Um... And maybe a cheeseburger. I haven't had one of those in 30 years. Scott Adams. The book is called Loser Think. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thanks to Scott Adams. That was a really fun interview for me. 
We drop new episodes of Jill on Money every Tuesday and Thursday. Sometimes we throw in a bonus episode as well. If you don't want to miss a single one, here's what you can do. Just subscribe. You can get our podcast anywhere you find your favorite podcast. Apple, Stitcher, Radio.com, Google Play, anywhere. And if you've got a financial question, don't forget to send us an email. Ask Jill at JillOnMoney.com. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Talercio is our executive producer. We're distributed by Cadence 13, and our show is presented by Marcus by Goldman Sachs. See you next week.